Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, Democrats take power in the House. But are we any closer to reopening the parts of the federal government that have been shut down for nearly two weeks now? Plus, 2020 is starting to boil and bubble up in the background. At the beginning of 2019, we size up two big political figures who made news this week. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, she of the newly announced Presidential Exploratory Committee, and newly sworn in Utah Senator Mitt Romney, who wrote a, uh, an explosive Washington Post op-ed criticizing President Trump on the eve of his swearing in. As always, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. That's January 3rd this week. So it's all up to date as of then, as the new Congress gets sworn in. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests, the inimitable Charlie Matessian, senior politics editor at Politico. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Scott. Happy 2019. Thank you. And here from Politico's White House team, Nerdcast regular Nancy Cook. Nancy, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Time for our first data point, 13 as of this conversation, a quarter of the federal government has been closed now for 13 days. No missed paychecks for government workers yet, but there could be very soon. They're they're on the horizon. So, Nancy, let's start broad. Is there any end in sight for this government shutdown? I do not see any end in sight immediately. And I spent all day yesterday at the White House. Um, it was a real shock. I'd been on vacation for 12 days and came back and was plunged back into Washington immediately. But um, when I was there... Had anything changed in those 12 days? Well, that was funny. Nothing had really changed. That's, that's the real shock. Actually. If you come back from vacation, you expect to have to to read up on all these developments that happen. Right. That's crazy. It was crazy. And what was also crazy was that it was like a busy day. Like there was a lot of stuff that was happening. Trump had this crazy cabinet meeting and congressional leaders came over to the White House allegedly to negotiate about the shutdown. But actually, by the end of the day, nothing had changed at all. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, congressional leaders are supposed to go back to the White House or at least Republicans are on Friday. But to me, it just signaled yesterday really signaled that you know, the shutdown is not going to be resolved likely by the end of this week. And when I talked to I talked to um, some administration officials last night, to me, it seemed like they're starting to privately sort of feel the heat of the shutdown. And the next marker that they have in their mind is next Friday, which is January 11th, which will be when people start to miss paychecks, because that's the next federal pay period. Got it. And so but that's still like over a week away. And, and Trump made it clear during a cabinet meeting that this would go on as long as it needed, as long as uh, as long as it was possible, as long as it was needed. It could be a long time, and it could be quickly. It could be a long time. It's it's too important a subject to walk away from. And Democrats also made it clear. You know, they came out and spoke to White House reporters after they had met with the president and some other top White House officials. On our last meeting, the president said, "I am going to shut the government down." They are now feeling the heat. It is not helping the president. It is not helping the Republicans. 
to be the owners of this shutdown. Today we gave them an opportunity to get out of that and open up the government as we debate border security. They made it clear that, you know, they feel like they have leverage in this and they want to fund the government, but they don't feel like they need to give Trump, uh, you know, money for this border wall. And, and and they made that very clear yesterday. And so there's just like this total impasse at this point. Right. Well, so the shutdown starts in mid to late December when Republicans control both houses of Congress, but they still don't have the votes to fund the government with the, with the wall. Now, today, Democrats take over control of the House of Representatives, and so it, it does seem like they're you know they're they're getting more cards in their hand as you know in thirty minutes, so to speak. And Nancy Pelosi too made it clear yesterday at the White House that she's going to pull a huge power play and power move today, and basically she's going to introduce bills to fund the government that Republicans in the past have overwhelmingly supported, and that's kind of the Democrats' plan to put Trump um, and Republicans back on their heels. And there was a lot of talk of that. You know, we're, we're we're putting forth bills that the Senate already voted in favor of. These are funding bills, and we don't see why you won't now approve them. Trump, meanwhile, is being privately counseled by Mick Mulvaney, his new acting chief of staff, and some other top White House officials, you know, not to take any uh, short-term funding bill for the Department of Homeland Security, which is one of the agencies that shut down. And so even Trump top advisors are sort of urging him to keep up his stance. So that's why I don't just see, that's why I don't see it ending anytime soon. Charlie, where where are the pressure points that that you see that could force something to change? As Nancy said, you know, she uh, was here and then left and came back, and everything everything was still the same. Obviously, Democrats taking control of the House is is a a, a big step. But what Nancy mentioned the uh, uh, federal workers' paychecks that could be missed on January 11th if this is still going on. What what else exists out there that you think could pressure? These signs, because Trump is is very insistent on on this wall funding or steel slats or whatever it is that he's talking about recently. Democrats are emboldened by the the sweeping midterm victories that they just enjoyed, that that have swept them into power. What gives? Yeah, I mean, there's that next road marker that Nancy mentioned the the uh, federal pay, but I don't see a, a whole lot of compromise points. I mean, in in, in a lot of ways. The, the president has painted himself into a corner. Uh, I don't think um, it was well, a well-thought-out strategy in the beginning, and now all of a sudden he understands that the base would be outraged if he gives uh, in an inch, yet on the other side, uh, the first thing the new Democratic majority in the House uh, does will not be caving on the border wall. And in fact, uh, they're not going to move at all um, because what was the, the preliminary offer of you know $1.3 billion in for fencing from the Democrats? And that prompted liberal outrage uh, among those who wanted not a single dollar for a border barrier. And so all of a sudden, you begin to see how the trenches have been dug, and you don't see a lot of room for compromise. And that's why I tend to think that this will drag on. For maybe. a while. Yeah, because I just don't see where do you where do you meet on this? Trump can't give anything because of the way he's misplayed his hand. And on the left, the you know Democrats are ascendant, uh, and, the, and their first move will not be to cave on this. I think that the way it could end is, you know, Trump is very ideologically flexible and also very good at marketing, and so it could end that in that you know he gets like a little bit more, maybe not for the wall, but for border security, and he casts it as a win. And, and I think that that 
maybe what will end up happening, although it's so hard to speculate with politics and this White House in particular, um, that maybe what will end up having to happen is that he casts something very small that he's given as like a, a huge, as a big, as a huge victory. And, that's and, usually how these things have resolved in the past, right? The, right. Both both sides find something to to like about about moving past a shutdown or wh- whatever happens to be the, the the sticking point issue in Congress. And, and then both day. claim victory. But I right. think Nancy's right, right here. I mean, that's the super smart observation that, that you have, which is here, I don't even know that Trump will get much of anything at all, but right. he will be forced to frame it as a victory no matter what it is. Right. And it's also so tricky because, you know, he's sending up these negotiators like Mulvaney. You know, Vice President Pence is leading the negotiations for the White House. Jared Kushner is involved. Shahir Knight, the head of legislative affairs. So he's sending them up to the Hill, he did before Christmas, so that they could make different offers and and, um, to the congressional leaders, the Democrats. But then he will say something in a cabinet meeting that's like totally different. And so undercutting his own negotiators. Right. And so what we saw yesterday, you know, when congressional leaders came to the White House, um, you know, I talked to people who were in the room. They had a meeting in the Situation Room that was supposed to be a briefing on immigration. But basically, Pelosi and Schumer just, um, you know, cut off the briefing from the officials and just tried to negotiate directly with Trump because there's a feeling on the part of the Democrats that, like, why would I waste my time with anyone else when Trump tweets or makes a comment and the negotiations goes off the rails? And so there's a sense that it only matters if you deal with him directly. And that's how we got here in the first place, right? Absolutely. The, this was this shutdown was not supposed to happen until Trump kind of performed I guess it wasn't even it was like a series of U-turns basically in in the the last week leading up to December 21st and and now here we are. Yeah, and the last week was supposed to be sort of this glide into Christmas. Um, you know, he was going to go to Mar-a-Lago for basically two weeks. Um, you know, he named a new acting chief of staff. But then what happened is, uh, you know, some far right members in the House um, like Jim Jordan's and, and Mark Meadows got a hold of him. And then also a lot of congressional uh, conservative commentators, excuse me, really started to nail him on border funding. And suddenly what we thought was going to be like smooth sailing Christmas holiday just turned on its head. But it happened quickly. And the important thing to keep in mind is this is what the Republican base cares the most about. When you look at the list of uh, – when, when pollsters frame it in terms of what issues matter most to you or do you care most about or you're paying most attention to, however, it's framed – they're different in each party. What the Democrats care about is different than what Republicans care about. And you see immigration and border security, however you frame it, rates really high for Republicans. And that's why uh, the president had to draw a line. I think he was probably surprised by the the ferocity of the outrage to you know, uh, him not getting his border money. Well, and I, I definitely think that Trump campaign officials feel like immigration is going to continue to be a very winning message for them heading into 2020. And so they want to really set the stage for that. The tricky thing is, is that in order to win the presidency next time, Trump is going to need to appeal to people just beyond his base. And, and uh, you know, it's unclear to me when he does moves like this, how that appeals to independents or suburban women, you know, groups that he lost, um, that Republicans lost with in the midterms. This is a problem a lot of politicians sure. uh, face, right? They think that everyone who voted for them is their base and that that's the, their starting point for the next time when, in fact, we know that it's often... Not the case. And we saw I mean, the, the, the House results speak for themselves, right? That's a national election that swung badly against uh, the party as Trump was banging the drum on, on immigration in the final weeks of October. But I think there's a big difference here in that uh, Trump has not operated like a conventional 
uh, politician in the sense that he came in with a smaller base. Granted, it's a harder base uh, that is immovable in many ways uh, and unchanging, but he never expanded it, at least with other presidents, whether it was on the left or the right, you began with your base and then you slowly expanded uh, as you went over time. He has not moved to expand it and has shown no growth whatsoever in expanding uh, his base since he took the office. And that's why we are where we are, right? So we'll we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, you know, may, maybe we'll have uh, four or five more shutdown segments over the next <laughs> weeks, to, um, at, depending on how long this drags on. Nancy, thank you so much for coming to to talk us through this. Of course, anytime. Thanks, Scott. All right, on to our next data point, which is four. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren will visit four cities in Iowa this weekend. That comes after her Monday announcement, that was New Year's Eve, that she is launching a 2020 exploratory committee. And then later this week, we saw Mitt Romney, the 2012 Republican presidential nominee, who's being sworn in today as a U.S. senator from Utah, published a blistering piece in The Washington Post saying that while he agrees with some of the president's policies, he thinks that President Donald Trump has not risen to the office. And the language he used there and and some of the language he he used in discussing uh, the piece on on TV afterwards is enough to raise the question of whether Romney himself or, or maybe someone else might challenge Trump for the Republican mantle in 2020. Charlie's sticking around with us, and we've got political reporter Alex Eisenstadt with us in the studio to, to talk through this one. Alex, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Let's start with Elizabeth Warren, though. Charlie, she's been sending signals for months, probably the strongest signals, the most clear signals of any uh, Democrat that she's going to be a presidential candidate. So can you recap some of the things that she's doing that have led us to this moment of the the exploratory committee launch? Sure. Uh, it, it wasn't a surprise in, in any way because uh, Elizabeth Warren has been forging a 2020 machine for some time now. She began well before the midterms. And one of the reasons I think it didn't get a, a tremendous amount of publicity was because she was also simultaneously running for re-election uh, back home in Massachusetts. So she couldn't really cut a high profile in the early presidential states in the way that some of the other uh, 2020 Democratic contenders could afford to go out there and, and be seen. But while she was campaigning for re-election back home in Massachusetts, she was uh, pouring money into building out a digital infrastructure. And keep in mind, she was already uh, built for a presidential campaign in part because of her uh, online fundraising base. Uh, she was, she's able to just mint money from small donors and has uh, shown that, that uh, talent since coming to the Senate. And so she has been in many ways quietly preparing uh, even before the midterms uh, happened in, in November. Uh, there were quiet discussions with uh, potential staffers for this new campaign and there were uh, endorsements. She was making calls to uh, some unsuccessful candidates, even to successful candidates. Uh, I, I know she uh, called some of the uh, upset primary winners earlier this year. Uh, those things weren't reported, but they were all part of building, uh, I think, the, the portfolio to prepare to run, and which is you know, essentially what she's doing right now. It's not enough just to talk the talk. We've actually got to be willing to get out and walk the walk. Kind of going from being a member of the party to a leader of the party or someone who could be seen as a leader of the party. And, and somebody who's able to get out of the starting blocks uh, with a potentially enormous field of 20 candidates. I mean, she was always going to be uh, more distinguished in a lot of ways than, than some of the people in the field. But this, uh, and, and also the timing of, of the exploratory committee, gets her out in front of everyone else. 
Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, I, I think given everything that you just said, we're not surprised that she is running, or I guess technically exploring at this point, right? But but did the timing surprise you at all? Eight thirty a.m. on on New Year's Eve. Uh, I I would like to. S- I no, it didn't surprise me, but that was in part because of the intrepid uh, reporting of, of uh, <laughs> Natasha Korecki, uh, who who knew this was going to happen. What was interesting is though that it gives, in some ways, Warren has a head start on everyone else because she has a head start literally because she announced before everyone else. Uh, and there, keep in mind, we're we're about to enter a window, uh, about a six week window, in which we're going to see some some top tier candidates announce their uh, presidential bids. So she gets out in front of all of the others whether it's Cory Booker or uh, Kirsten Gillibrand or Kamala Harris. She gets out in front of everybody and also has a head start with his digital infrastructure. And then yesterday, she rolled out four uh, top flight hires out of Iowa that had, uh, I think, people, you know, at least in Iowa and certainly that are in the know about national politics and really understand the mechanics of winning elections, sort of... uh, you know, surprised at the show of strength with, with you know, supremely talented uh, Iowa uh, staffers and, and operatives. I think the the digital aspect of what you mentioned is especially interesting that she's getting this first bite at the apple of, of bringing in online fundraising for 2020. And I, th- I think it's interesting also that she, d- despite everything we've said and, and how clear all these signals are that she's launching an exploratory committee instead of just coming out and launching a presidential campaign. But what that does is it gives her another big moment later, right? She announces her exploratory committee. I'm sure she raised a ton of money on December 31st when she did that. Later, she's going to announce, hey, I, okay, now I'm officially running and it's going to be another kind of big bonanza to get her email list excited to, to you know, rake in some donations, 15, 20, 30 bucks at a time. And it's just going to be another another big day that she can capitalize on. Julian Castro is doing the same thing, right? He launched an exploratory committee in December. And and when he launched, he said, and we're going to be making a big announcement on January 12th, I think. Um, I don't think the big announcement is going to be that he's not running, right? But it's another it's another chance to make to to be the story of the day, to to make a big media splash, to make a big online fundraising splash, to excite your base. And that's going to be essential this year when you have so many candidates running and everyone trying to define their la- their lane and and also distinguish themselves from uh, a a field that will have you know some pretenders, but lots of legitimate, uh, very accomplished uh, contenders for the nomination. Alex, I, I want to jump into Mitt Romney for a second, but I'm curious your perspective on all this, having covered the Republican side of things when, when the Republican Party was in this same moment in uh, January 2015, moving into 2016, when all these uh, these these folks were launching their campaigns. Do, do you, are, are there parallels there in terms of what, what people are trying to do, or is it really, are, are the two parties kind of operating on, on uh, are, are the rules of the game different? Well, I think what... what you, what similarity you might see is is sort of jostling over lanes. You remember back in 2016, you had Republicans fighting over – you had uh, Rubio and Jeb Bush fighting over the establishment lane and maybe the Florida lane. Uh, you had Ted Cruz and Rand Paul fighting over the sort of conservative Tea Party lane. And so one of the things that's going to be interesting to see is how does someone like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, for example, how do they jostle over the progressive wing? Are they going to be uh, putting out negative oppo on one another? Are they going to be attacking each other sort of behind the scenes uh, early? That's going to be something that I think will be interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. It strikes me so far, at least looking at the polling, that that the lanes start a lot more muddled on the Democratic side. You could see even early in 2015 that you know people who liked, say, Jeb Bush also 
uh, voters I'm talking about in, in opinion polls, people who liked Jeb Bush also liked Chris Christie. A lot of them also liked Marco Rubio. They did not like Ted Cruz or Rand Paul and vice versa, right? There, it seems like there's a lot more overlap. It seems most, most of the Democrats who like Elizabeth Warren also like Bernie Sanders, but they also like Joe Biden. They also like you know, go down the line all to all 20. And, and it, it strikes me as we're, we're starting in a little bit more muddled situation. Yeah. And, and one thing about Warren's announcement on um, on New Year's Eve, I, I know there was some attention paid to that. Some people were questioning whether it was a smart data to do that. What, what struck me was that she chose to pick a slow news day. And a lot of these people who are going to be looking, who are going to be announcing their, their campaigns, that's the day when they get a lot of attention. That's the day when they can get news coverage. But unlike in 2016, they're going to be competing against a president who's actually making a ton of news, mm. not not just every day, but every hour potentially. And so they're going to be competing in a really, not just among themselves to get attention, but really against a president who's, who's dominating news cycle after news cycle after news cycle. That's a really good point. And they're also going to have to find unique ways to break yeah. through uh, his stranglehold on the news cycle. Right. I mean, Trump, will, as we've seen, will do anything uh, at at any moment and no matter how unconventional or, or perhaps undignified, no matter what it is. And so you have to be a sort of unique candidate either to to counter that or at least to somehow share a news cycle with that kind of uh, politician. That's a great point. It's going to be fascinating to watch as more of these candidates uh, launch and otherwise get off the ground. All right. On to Mitt Romney. Alex, recap what was in this op-ed in the Washington Post that caused so much uh, hullabaloo yesterday. It was very noteworthy for how new senator stepping in, challenging the leader of his party directly. Of course, Mitt Romney is not your typical senator. Right. Uh, it was a a op-ed that focused really kind of broadly on this notion of Trump's character and that he had kind of fallen short of, of meeting the mantle of, of, of leading the country. And it also focused uh, heavily on on foreign policy, which is, of course, an area that Mitt Romney is uh, pretty focused on. There was a time, actually, when he when Trump was considering him to become Secretary of State, but but Romney expressed concern about the departure of, of Jim Mattis. He uh, expressed concern about the Syria troop pullout. And so it, it really, these, these are themes that Romney has actually been sounding for some time about uh, President Trump, but it was striking to see it, I think, in an op-ed format, to see it in sort of a, a formal uh, newspaper setting and not just, say, a tweet, which is what Romney has been doing in recent months. This this sparked a lot of conversation on Wednesday about, is, oh, is Mitt Romney going to run right. for president again? He was asked directly about it on TV, and he said no. But what, what do you think th- this means in terms of the possibility that Trump could face a challenger of some sort. Well, the, the timing is is interesting because uh, you know over the last month there sort of seems to be growing concern among uh, Republican Party elites about Trump, and and this is sort of something that seems to have uh, really intensified following Mattis's departure, following the Syria pullout. Uh, you know, following the midterms. Following the midterms. Of course, these are all sort of private conversations, right? You still don't get many uh, Republican senators getting, coming out and speaking in a, in a sort of consistent, forceful way um, uh, against the president. But you have sort of seen a little bit of an uptick in criticism um, in recent weeks. And so the fact that that Romney's uh, op-ed dovetailed with this, it sort of led to kind of an increase in speculation that, look, 
what kind of primary could uh, Donald Trump face uh, heading into 2020? Could he face a symbolic one? Could he face a real one? Who would run him, run against him, and, and what would it real, what would it look like? Yeah. Do you take Romney's denial that he's interested in running at, at face value in 2020? You, you, you know, talking to his people, they say that uh, they are insistent that he is not looking uh, to run against uh, Donald Trump. They they say it very, very, very forcefully that he is not uh, looking to run, and so. I think that you know you have to you have to take that seriously, and and um, there there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to suggest that he's looking to run against President Trump, and and if he did, he would cer- certainly have probably a, a pretty uphill climb at this point, just because Romney isn't necessarily where the most of the Republican Party is anymore. Mm-hmm. It, seem, it seems like anyone would have an uphill climb. Right. Alex, there's a subplot that you reported on here that that's really interesting, involving uh, the Republican National Committee chairwoman, the artist formerly known as Ronald Romney McDaniel, now just goes by Ronna McDaniel, right. but she's Mitt Romney's niece, and. You reported that Romney called her himself to, to say, I guess, on, t- on Tuesday night, it's like, hey, by the way, I'm going to be launching a broadside at your boss in The Washington Post. Right. That's basically what happened. And uh, Ronna McDaniel was – she was immediately frustrated by that. She knew, uh, based upon my reporting, that she uh, wanted to push back publicly against her uncle. And so what she did was on Tuesday evening, um, as this piece was about to hit print, uh, she called – she spoke by phone. Uh, with President Trump, and she basically said, "Look, uh, my uncle is going to be out with an op-ed pretty soon that just absolutely savages you." And so, what you saw in the coming hours was uh, that evening, after the op-ed uh, was published, she put put out a, a tweet, sort of defending the president. And then Wednesday morning, as as this op-ed sort of dominated the news cycle, she put out a more forceful tweet, uh, sort of scolding. Uh, Mitt Romney for for his op-ed. Round one, fight. It's going to be interesting to watch how how Romney keeps uh, keeps going in the Senate. I mean, he said he said yesterday in response to this that he's not going to be a daily commentator on on President Trump, but that he is going to speak out when he thinks it's necessary. And um, with uh, people like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, who have previously been the president's biggest critics among Senate Republicans, leaving. Uh, with with the new Congress being sworn in, it's going to be very interesting to see what role Romney plays. But it's also interesting because of the unusual base that he has to operate from. I mean, what what can tends to be overlooked is that Flake and Corker really had no room to maneuver once they staked out their position. Meaning they were they were uh, intent on uh, being contrarians and and fighting the president on on the issues that mattered to them, and it cost them both politically to the point where they were non viable as reelection candidates uh, in the end because the state parties were elsewhere. But Utah is very unique in that Trump has never had very much support uh, among the LDS community, uh, and you know uh, you saw this in the primaries. You even saw this in the general election. Mormons just didn't, never took to Donald Trump and still haven't, certainly not in large numbers. I mean, the, the, you see some warming toward the president, but there's still a reticence among the Republican, uh, among the various Republican constituencies. There's there's still softness. There's still a lot of weakness um, when it uh, when uh, with Donald Trump when it comes to Utah Republicans. And I think that gives Romney a little bit of an advantage in that uh, because in some ways uh, he's an exalted figure in, in Utah uh, and because it's a state that is very conservative and very Republican, yet not ultra pro Trumpy, uh, that will give him some leeway and room to maneuver that other politicians might not have had. That's a great point. Un- unique national profile and megaphone, but also unique 
base at home to back it up. Exactly. It's going to be fun to watch. Alex, thank you so much for, you. for talking to us about it. And Charlie, thank you as always. Thank you, Scott. All right. As usual, we are going to turn things over briefly here at the end of the podcast to one Nerdcast superfan. Jonathan Blunden from the UK is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaelia Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is the executive producer and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcasts and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Jonathan. Listeners, we found Jonathan because he emailed in to say he was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, please let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening this week. We will talk to you again next week. <laughs>